Shrinkwrap Radio number 851, UK psychology journalist Tanith Carey on how to recapture life's highs. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Tanith Carey, is author of the new book, Feeling Blah? Why Anhedonia Has Left You Joyless? and How to Recapture Life's Highs. Danith is an award-winning author of more than a dozen books on psychology, parenting, and social history. This current book comes out of her own experience. She had everything in life that was supposed to make her happy, a great career, a loving partner, two happy, healthy children, and yet the happy feelings that are supposed to arrive at life's high points just weren't there. Instead, she felt numb. Now, here's the interview. Tanith Carey, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Hi. 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 <laughs> You're in London, right? What's yeah, the, I'm in what's London. The, what's the weather like there? It's boiling, really hot. <laughs> really? My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> So, do you think that's part of global warming? I mean, would it normally be boiling this time of year there? Yeah, it was last summer. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, I guess we have to see the long range to see what's actually happening. But yeah, it can get hot here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we're going to be discussing your new book, and you've written quite a few books, uh, Feeling Blah, Why Anhedonia Has Left You Joyless, and How to Recapture Life's Highs. But before we get into that, uh, let's start with giving with you giving our audience uh, kind of an overview, a, a sketch of your uh, tr- training and professional background. Yeah, so I started out as a journalist, and I say that I write about what I need to learn, and I've always been passionately interested in psychology. So as my journalism developed, I wanted to harness ideas that were in the psychology world, which maybe weren't yet in the general, known to the general public, so that they could use that and to improve their own life. And so and it's been a wonderful learning experience for me. So originally I started, as I had children, I started writing parenting books and then more, very much more deep parenting psychology. So I've written What's My Child Thinking?, Practical Child Psychology for Modern Parents with um, Dr. Anne Harrod Rudkin. And then I did the teen version. Um, they, these are all out in America as well with Dr. Carl Pickhart as well. 
And then I've just written, what's my tween thinking? But now as my children are older, I was able to step back and look at my how I felt about life. And I realized that I also wanted to write more general psychology books. So what I see myself as, as is as a, a communicator, I'm able, luckily I have the able to um, make quite difficult concepts sort of more digestible to general readers. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, that's, that's what I, I try to do too. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. I love research. Um, I love to bring research that's done by all the incredible professionals, you know, and bring it out into the open so it's it's generally applicable. So yeah, that's there's, there's there's plenty of that out there these days. And yeah. um, so how did you, you know, and I like interviewing journalists, actually, because uh, they always have done their preparation and done a lot of research and, and uh but you actually have, I notice in your bio that you have a certificate of some sort in psychology. Yeah, was so that... I, was, I did a course at the Metanoia Institute here in London, okay. and I'm just currently about to embark on my full psychology training. So, you know, I mean, previously I've worked with psychologists to basically, because I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a psychologist and you're in practice, you have a lot going on, you know, you may be, you know, you're not... I think sometimes you it's great to have the help of a writer and a journalist just to kind of just harness stuff. Huh. So okay. yeah. So but I also like now I have more time, my children are growing up. I'd also like to have that full psychology training as well. Yeah. So how did you come to write this particular book? This newest one? Right. So I am I'm really into interoception and trying to notice how I feel and also naming emotion. So I um I tell this story in the book, but um this first occurred to me a few years ago when I got a phone call from my agent and it was the news that um, I landed a very good book deal, which I'd been hoping for. And I was on the phone to her and I was going, yeah, that's great. That's fabulous. That's that's really good, good news. But as I put the phone down, I realized there was actual no joy kind of coursing through me. I couldn't actually feel anything. Um, and then after that, I started to sort of, I started wondering, what well, what is that? Why Why can't I really feel a positive emotion? And then after that, I started to sort of notice that more and more, you know, maybe I love Christmas, but at Christmas, I couldn't really feel in the moment. I couldn't really feel the happiness, you know, at parties, celebrations, even holidays. I'm like, when am I going to feel this, you know? Did you did you think maybe you were depressed? Yeah, I think that I, I think sometimes this stuff kind of is under our awareness. And I, but I think because I was fully functioning, I was a very, very busy journalist. Um, I was just because I, I thought I wasn't, I kind of had seen depression as something that stops you from doing stuff. And I, I thought I would be, you know, much more incapacitated by it. But because I was getting on with life, I didn't think that I was. But looking back on it, I think I was very close to burnout. And I think that's probably what contributed to that that feeling that we're talking uh -huh. about. But obviously, you know the book. The book is also um, a voyage of discovery for myself and other people. And you know, obviously, I had to look back in my childhood as well. And like, why did I sometimes feel, you know, I have a lovely family, I have a lovely house, I have a great career, I have a gorgeous husband, I have two lovely children. It's like, but why I also realized I also had a fear of happiness, so that when they were surrounded, surrounding me, and I, I didn't, I, I felt uncomfortable. I felt a visceral feeling. Here, it was like, oh this makes me feel really uncomfortable. So I also had to delve back into that. Yeah. Um, 
And and do I recall correctly that you also did some interviews with people trying to explore how widespread the, the kind of thing that you were experiencing might be? Yeah. So basically, I it was a kind of I had kept I kept looking for what this one might be, and then finally, I mean, I googled it. And it was like bad. <laughs> like Anne Anne Hedonia. It's like oh my gosh. This is it's really obvious what the word means. It's like, how come no one knows about this? So then I went and I, th- I realized that I wasn't the only person thinking this. This was actually quite a well-known concept in the clinical field. But then I also looked at the research and I saw that you don't have to be clinically depressed to have anhedonia. Obviously, anhedonia is often a symptom of major depression, schizophrenia, Park- Parkinson's, all those kind of things. But you can still be like me, kind of getting on with life and just not enjoying it. So this book is for like is not for depressed people because obviously they need to be doing their own stuff. This is for people who maybe feel overwhelmed by modern life. I mean, the book is also um, a look about how modern life tells us we're supposed to be happy, but actually makes it very, very hard um, because we're obviously of, often in cortisol overload, which is often a major, major uh, contributor to sort of uh, low mood and depression. Um, I think the cortisol overload we're experiencing and then um, is also dampening some the effect of some of our feel-good chemicals. And I think what the book also is, is to say, well, look, modern life makes happiness harder. But the good news is, is that we know more of the neuroscience of joy than we've ever known before. So we have fMRI scanners. We can see roughly how emotions start to be used in the brain. So my point here is to kind of understand the science of joy so that we can then use it to push back against um, the happiness reducing impact of modern life. Yeah, okay. Uh, anhedonia is not, doesn't it? It rolls off your tongue better than it does mine. <laughs> when, I, when I try to record an introduction for the show, I really, it sounds kind of weird the way I pronounced it. Um, <laughs> And so I was surprised to read in the book that uh, that term, anhedonia, which it sounds like it would have been something maybe was a result of positive psychology where there had been a lot of emphasis on, on, uh, on hedonics, you know, yeah. and how that's not the whole, the whole source of joy. You know, going after hedonism isn't really going to get you there. Um, so this is really based on, on your experience very largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what is, tell us about the word, I was surprised to see that the word anhedonia goes mm-hmm. way, way back. Absolutely. So it was coined by a French psychologist in 1896. That's going and- way back. Yeah. yeah. It's impressive, actually. Yeah, and then it was it was discussed quite a lot. The guy was called Ribot, and it was discussed quite a lot in the early twentieth century by American psychologists. And then it was seen, and then into the fifties, it was seen as a sort of character flaw, even. Um, and so our understanding of it has just evolved and evolved and evolved. And now it's really seen as many things. I mean, some people, some uh, psychiatrists, I gather, put it in the plural. It's like the anhedonias because we now realize it comes in many flavors, shades, nuances. It can, ev- it can affect various ways of appreciating the world, like your sense of taste, your eyesight, wow. um, your sexual enjoyment, your orgasm, your so your in fact even in, even your enjoyment of music, 
In fact, if you speak to people with anhedonia, one of the first things they noticed, and I, I noticed, was that the chills that I expected to feel when I heard my favorite music no longer came. So yeah, so I look in the book about that. What did they what did did they used to come and and more recently they stopped. Yeah. Yeah, they stopped. Yeah, they stopped. And I mean, you know, I'd be at concerts and like my, my daughter's a classical uh, violinist and I'd be at concerts and I just couldn't quite feel the incredible music that was in front of me because she's a you know violinist at the Royal College of Music. So it's like I was going to amazing concerts, but I couldn't. It wasn't a it wasn't coursing through me, if you see what I mean. So, uh huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and was what you said at the, at the turn of the century, some psychologists use it too. I recall that William James was one yeah. of the people you you mentioned and it really surprised me you know to hear that it went that far back although William James seemed to figure everything out <laughs> that we right. that we've been tr figuring out for the all all the subsequent years yeah. uh, so he was, and, he was way ahead of his time and then Abraham Myerson 1922 was talking about it too okay that name I don't know Abraham okay. Morrison Myerson is what I have here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't know him. Yeah, uh, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I mean, do you uh, think, I mean, how, how do you feel? I mean, do you think it's, and Hedonia is generally discussed in the, is, is, why do you think it hasn't come out into the general public? Um, I, I think we, not enough of us have interviewed you <laughs> or, or, or been exposed to your book. I've not heard the term before. So, Clearly, I haven't oh. read, it, read everything that's out there, but for me, you know, as I say, the the first thing that came to mind was, oh, positive psychology. This yeah. is this is uh, uh, the maybe a mirror image or the dark side of of positive psychology. Uh, yeah. that, but but I had not come across the term, and uh, you. I mean, it's also interesting. Um, Corey Keys, I think, was talking the about languishing versus flourishing, I think, in the early 2000s. So that was yeah. kind of a towards that, maybe. Okay, yes. And flourishing is, you know, was a big term in positive psychology, probably still is. Mm -hmm. uh, so, lang I, but again, I wasn't familiar with the languishing uh, mm -hmm. uh, word, and, mm -hmm. but, it, but it makes sense. And uh, one of the interesting things, you do have some ideas about how people who are suffering from this or experiencing this can combat it. But I was interested that you, in your preface, you say, uh, you, you talk about self-help books and how is this a self-help book and how is it not a self-help book? Mm, yeah, no, I'm aware that um, there, there's been so much self-help that it's got a kind of a bad um, rep, do you know what I mean? And I was conscious that I wanted to make this book different and I didn't want to be repeating. I am I think as a writer, I'm very allergic to telling people stuff they already know. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I find that very difficult, you know? So um, I wanted an aha moment on every single page and I wanted it to be really readable. Yeah, yeah, I didn't and want it to be, is. Oh, good. Yeah. And I didn't want it to be one of those things that stood on someone's nightstand and they just couldn't quite. I wanted it to be enjoyable as well. So um, I said, what was the question? Um, yeah. So I wanted it to be different. And I really wanted it to be because I'm, you know, I'm fully aware that, you know, I am a, a writer. So I wanted to go to like some of America's top neuroscientists. So Professor Kent Barrage, 
who obviously has been amazing in understanding the reward system, was very kind and he uh, reviewed the chapter on how happiness is formed in the brain for me. So I, yeah, I wanted it to be new and I wanted it to be exciting and I wanted it to be to fill in the missing conversation in our mental health. Because I think, you know, we have happiness and joy, which is supposed to be our unicorn state at one end, and we have despair and depression at the other. But like, what about what about the nuance in between? Yeah. So yeah. fill in this, because that's where in the modern life we live, many of us are living our lives. And, you know, I guess um, I, early on, many people were going, well, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis, you know, the world's in a mess, you know, do we really need to be talking about blah? I'm like, yeah, we absolutely do, because unless more of us are flourishing on this planet, we are not going to be reaching our potential and we are not going to be in the best position to kind of push back against the challenges that we're facing. So I think it's a really urgent conversation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and you make that case uh, well in the book. Was it hard for you to write? I would think that if you were in that state of anhedonia, it might be hard to motivate yourself to put your nose to the grindstone and... and st- stick to it um yeah yeah i think deadlines <laughs> deadlines help right that's what got me through school <laughs> and also, i don't know i as shorthand i don't know if this is like disruptive but i'm, but I'm very infj so i'm just like i have something to say this is new i want to share it so that drives me forward and obviously you know as, as i said i write what i need to learn so as i was writing the book it was a great great thing for me because I realized what I could do to get my joy reflowing again and what I needed to do. So it was a, it was a journey of personal discovery for me and hopefully for other people. Yeah, you have a section in which you ask, uh, why has blah become normal? Mm. So maybe, maybe you can speak to that because uh, as you looked into it, it seemed like it was fairly widespread. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that people don't talk about blah because they feel guilty. And I certainly felt that. So, you know, when I. Yeah, we're supposed to, we live in a, in a time and a culture where we're supposed to be up, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if we're not depressed and we don't urgently need help, then we think we sound ungrateful or what are we worrying about? And if we're still functioning, what's the problem? So I think which many of us have come to accept this as the status quo. And because we haven't had a word for it, it's been allowed to be the status quo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. And also, like, you know, we don't want to tell our partners because they think that it's their job to make us happy. You know, we think mm. they might feel blamed. You know, we don't want to tell, we don't really want to share it with our children. We don't particularly want to share it with our friends because we just feel like we're going to look really miserable and no fun. So we have all these conversations running through our head, which is why we don't discuss it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm. And, and at the same time, you say there's a price that we pay for keeping it inside. Uh, say something about that. What is what is the price that we pay? Um, the price we pay is that we are, I mean, life is, is short. And we are, if you're living in a, in a state of emotional flatlining, you know, I mean, think about Adonia. It's not just that you don't have joyful feelings. You also may not feel, you don't have the full range of your emotion so you may not feel sort of, you know, sad at appropriate times. You may not be able to cry. You might feel your emotions are blocked. So basically you're kind of walking through life in a kind of zombie-like state. And I, yeah. I don't think that we should be um, accepting that as the way things are, really. And yeah, also, you I know, like, and, uh, sorry, what? I like your phrase, emotional flatlining. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think that, um, yeah, I think we deserve better and we all have to, we should be optimizing ourselves. Not optimizing, sorry, that sounds a bit whatever, but I think we should, <laughs> we should, like, we're an incredible, like, you know, I think there's a, there's a stat I use in the book, which I now can't remember because I'm terrible at numbers, but it's like 14 billion to one chance that you are actually on this planet right now. And like, and you're not like in it, you're not experiencing it. You're not feeling the full range of joy. You know, this is wrong. You know, we can, you can, with the knowledge of how joy is made in your brain, you can experience this, you know, you can be a more fulfilled, creative person. And, you know, and I, you know, what's really important actually, David, is that um, we are in a state of um, every single generation since the fifties has got consistently le less happy. We, I think it's now accepted that in first world countries, we're in a mental health freefall. So what's going to happen unless we, unless we start to turn this around and understand how our emotions are made in the brain, where are we heading? And also like if our children aren't happy, what example are we setting to them if we are unable to live a joyful life? You know, we have yeah. to set examples to our kids because our kids are struggling. Yeah, in fact, you uh, you do you do cite some statistics uh, in the book. You say surveys have found that up to a fifth of us live in a state of blah, <laughs> <laughs> to, to use a technical term. And yeah. um, millennials, uh, they say, are most likely to be languishing at 30%, followed by Gen Z at 26%, and mm. Gen X at 21%, and baby boomers at 14%. Uh, so why do you think it's distributed in the in that particular way? Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. That is going to be for my follow-up. <laughs> I'm going to have to do some more uh, generation-specific interviews to see why. I'm sure there are different reasons for deep, for different generations. I mean, it's easy. It's interesting that baby boomers are at 14%, isn't it? That's by far the lowest. Um, yeah, Gen X, yeah. Yeah. But let me let me get back to you on that one. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll have to wait for the next book on that one. Well, no, I'm being glib, actually, to be honest, because I mean, like, there are hormonal changes, aren't there? Like around the sort of the in women, particularly around um, 40 to 55, which will also explain it. So basically, as estrogen drops, um, that also has a big knock-on effect on things like dopamine and serotonin. Um, so that would be kicking in there as well. So that's one more thing we have to be aware of. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, also, I guess in the younger generations, it's going to be that the, we live in such a competitive world and they have to fight so hard. I mean, the things that, you know, our generation maybe took for granted, like, you know, college uh, education, getting an OK job, getting a good job, you know, advancing are no longer guaranteed to us. Right. So I think that explains why we have a lot of like, you know, the great recognition on TikTok where people just go, OK, you know, I'm ticking off all the things I'm supposed to want. Um, but it's still not making me happy. What am I going to do about it? So some people are just opting out completely. Uh -huh. so, yeah. So I think it, it depends for each generation. There are various different reasons. I mean, you know, there's never one thing for one cause of anhydronia. It's usually multifactorial. So environmental, biological, um, historical. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned uh, is long COVID, in mm. which uh, I've, talk to some people who are suffering from long COVID and yeah. uh, what, what, and uh, I think you, uh, you implicate inflammation. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research now showing the effect of um, basically inflammation on the brain's reward system. And COVID, long COVID, um, anhedonia is now a recognized symptom of long COVID. So I think this would explain why. And of course, the insidious thing about anhedonia is it reduces your motivation. So in the UK, for example, we've got a lot of people with long COVID who never return to work. But, you know, it's possible that that's because it's reduced their motivation and the, run, the smooth running of their brain's reward system. So, yeah. And I mean, any kind of um, autoimmune uh, disease can also uh, cause inflammation that now appears to affect the brain's reward system. So you've got diabetes, obesity, you know, lupus, MS, all those kind of things can also affect. And, yeah. 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 And, and you also mentioned uh, uh, hormonal and diet shifts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, in the UK and the US, we have the highest consumption of highly processed foods um, in the world, and the preservatives um, in and as well as the other factors that are made in the, that food are also contributing to a reduction in the range of gut microbiota, uh, which basically produces serotonin. So that's one more reason we have to sort of like think about our diets, not as something that makes us look a certain way, but actually makes us feel a certain way. Because mm -hmm. if we eat a full range of foods, that's going to supply the, the microbacteria, which are going to produce serotonin. So that's really, really important as well. Has, has your delving into this affected uh, your diet at all? Yeah. I mean, my diet. <laughs> Put you yeah. on the spot here. <laughs> Oh, no, I don't mind at all. Yeah, I mean, t totally, it made me think about processed foods in a different way. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, just not, not, I mean, obviously, in the moment, processed foods are great. But like, I just noticed, I mean, I just, I, yeah, I, I just, I, th I think about them as how it might affect my mood in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, generally, I, I eat pretty healthy. Yeah. <laughs> not supposed to, you're not supposed to say that now, you, but yeah, I, I eat stuff that makes me feel good is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, and you talk about anhedonia as a warning sign mm. and a red flag. Uh, talk talk about that a bit. Yeah, so anhedonia is, um, it's like, it. it's kind of, I think Corey Keyes has, has referred to this and he says it's like parking ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. It's like kind of, it's a warning sign that actually that you are becoming overloaded, you're becoming less able to cope. You might be functioning, but it could be your cup is close to brimming over and one more drop can kind of push you into depression. Uh -huh. And it can be like the purgatory before depression strikes. So therefore, it's not just a kind of, oh, yeah, whatever. It's just I do think we have to take it more seriously. Okay. And and if you're in it, just to try steps to, to, to come out of it so that you can, um, so that you're more resilient, really. It's a sign that, you know, you it's going to be difficult to cope if one more bad thing happens to you, yeah, I'd say. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you recommend to people as a way to uh, to uh, resist anhedonia and to not fall into the anhedonic pit? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think the worst, the, I mean, sorry, the, the main thing is to know that it's a thing. I mean, like, who knew this was an actual thing with, all these reasons that could be addressed because you know it's name it to tame it you can't fix it unless you know what it is so just very even if no one bought the book and never had heard they, they'll remember anhedonia and they'll know that a state of blah 
you don't have to be in it. And there are lots of reasons for it. So, and I, I think the next thing is to have a really good look and work out what your reasons might be. And that, as I said, there's many suggestions in the book which might be correct. And then there is an awareness of how joy is made in the brain. And once you, um, obviously the brain is a highly complex organ, but once you have an idea of how your brain reward system works, I think you feel more able to visualize it and feed it better inputs and have more awareness of what's making you feel better and what's making you feel worse. Um, you know, and to have a recognition of when your cortisol is starting to, to rise to such a such a level that, you know, you're just not feeling good feelings anymore. Yeah. Because you know, obviously, like, you know, we live with the same brain that we had 100,000 years ago when our cortisol was supposed to spike when we were being surrounded by a pack of hyenas or chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Um, the human brain was not really designed for, like, constant inputs and uh, stresses and reminders and worries and anxieties that we have now, the 24-hour news cycle. Um, so I think really also understanding what how the human brain was designed, because I, I go into quite a lot of detail about that, and how the human brain was designed, but, like, how there's a mismatch with our environment now, I think that helps a great deal. Yeah, what, if anything, have you done to uh, improve your internal brain environment? Um, I think one of the greatest things for me was to have some somatic therapy where I started to realize why I felt discomfort about happiness. Because if you if you feel like happiness is gonna be snatched away from you at any moment, then that's, that's gonna be very challenging. Um, so I think that I started to understand my nervous system response to feeling good so that I could ground myself and make myself feel safe in those moments. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite bits in the book because that's been so personally life-changing for me. Um, you, you say somatic therapy. Uh... Yeah, so that's basically like, um, rather than, I mean, obviously, uh, rather than just talk therapy, it's basically looking at basically how your nervous system is wired in, uh, wired in childhood to respond to certain uh, certain experiences. And so like your nervous system obviously is wired up as a baby and as a toddler and as a child. So, you know, your nervous system is wired before you're even able to speak by the experiences around you. So if, for example, you uh, brought up in quite a chaotic um, environment where maybe the adults were basically acting in quite unpredictable ways um, or life felt very prone to change, then you might feel like, okay, you may not feel safe in a moment of happiness you might and you 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 be kind of you internalize this into your nervous system so that like when you feel happy even when you're safe as an adult you feel like your happiness is going to be taken away from you so yeah i mean that's a kind of it's called actually called cherophobia the fear of happiness <laughs> uh -huh. so that's that's another word <laughs> anhedonia and cherophobia what, um what else have i done? What, i mean what was that word Cherophobia, C-H-E-R-O phobia, cherophobia. Um, and I, I think that now I understand how dopamine works better. I try to regulate my dopamine system better. Uh -huh. So, I mean, having realized that dopamine is not the molecule of reward, it's actually the molecule of anticipation. So I always make sure with my husband that we have something to look forward to every week. Uh-huh, yeah. Something in the diary. So it's all those kind of things. It's like understanding what makes you feel good and actually giving yourself the time to do it. I'm a big believer in the concept of spark, which is basically the thing that each person is naturally drawn to and finds easier. 
and you probably might have seen it in childhood. It might be, you know, caring for animals, listening to people, communicating, art, music, all that kind of thing. And then to also, and that allows you to fall into a state of flow. So, you know, I understand what my um, sparks are and I try to do more of them. Okay. okay. So, yeah, so it's so many different things, you know, it's like, you, you, you know, you, you can put together your personal recipe. <laughs> Why should people buy this book? I know that you're hoping that they will. I hope so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe because this is the first popular psychology um, book on this missing word in mental health, and this brings more nuance to our mental health conversation, which I think is lacking at the moment. Uh-huh. And I think it will, this book will show many people, and this is what I'm hearing from the readers, you know, that there is another way and that they don't have to feel just grey. The, the world doesn't have to be, look like it's in muted shades of grey. It can be colourful and vibrant and you can feel more present in it. Um, and I, I want more people to flourish. I, I want people to buy this book because I think they will flourish after it. I think you could buy this book and I, I sorry, it sounds like a sales bill, but I think you could think about your happiness different any, differently in a couple of days after reading this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, anything else that uh, people should know or that you'd like them to know? For example, uh, do you have a website that uh, that they should visit? Well, I like to share like insights and kind of bite-sized forms on my um, Instagram. Uh-huh. So I like put little snippets of the book on there and little explainer videos. And I also up upload, yeah, I upload them onto my um, Instagram, which is called No More Blah Book. Okay. So no you know, if they'd like to delve a little bit more, they can have a look and see what I'm saying there. Okay. The No More Blah Book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, Danith Carey, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Well, thank you for asking me, David. I'm very honored. My recent guest, Tanith Carey, taught me a lot, both from our conversation and her recent book, Feeling Blah, why Anahedonia has left you joyless, and how to recapture life's highs. One thing I learned is that Tanith is a successful London author who has specialized in writing books on psychological topics, including ones related to parenting and child development. In fact, this is her 12th book, she has a long-standing curiosity about what makes us tick, and therefore, her specialization on psychological topics. This most recent book is rooted in large part in her own experience of anhedonia. In fact, the very term was new learning for me. Somehow, I'd never encountered it in any of my reading or many interviews, so I was shocked to learn that the word goes back to the 1800s in the psychological literature and was even used by William James. Certainly, we've encountered the root word hedonic in recent positive psychology writing. Martin Seligman has taken to using the word flourishing instead of happiness, which fails to account for the variability in our emotional states. Conversely, languishing seems fairly synonymous with the sense of anhedonia, and boredom and burnout are close neighbors. 
It was this latter sort of experience that led Tanith to her discovery of anhedonia in the psychological literature. She noticed for some time that life was feeling flat. She had everything in life that was supposed to make her happy, a great career, a loving partner, two happy, healthy children, and yet the happy feelings that are supposed to arrive weren't there. Instead, she felt numb. Even landing a contract for this most recent book failed to deliver the usual shot of joy. Instead, she just felt blah. As she began to research anhedonia, she discovered it's a widespread first-world problem. Folks scraping to get by don't have the luxury of feeling moody. Tanith finds that despite having all our basic needs met in first-world societies, we're getting less happy, not more. In addition, she writes that science shows there is biological payback for our convenience society. She asserts we've been fooled into thinking blah is the price we pay for keeping our lives on track in a stressful society. Among the stresses she mentions is COVID. That one really hit home for me. My wife and I took the lockdown seriously. We isolated from friends and even local family. Keeping our young grandchildren at bay was especially hard. When we finally did relax our vigilance for family events, we actually came down with COVID. I noticed in myself that COVID robbed a lot of my spontaneity and sociability. There's been less fun. If it weren't for a couple of regular Zoom groups with my men friends and these podcast interviews, I wouldn't have much of a social life at all. I find I have to kick myself in the pants and make a special effort to get out of the house and back into the world. After our interview was over and I turned off the recorder, Tanith and I were able to get down with each other. I always try to develop as much rapport with my guests as I can during the interview, but we really got cooking after the formal interview was over. In large part, I credit Tanith's skills as an interviewer with loosening things up. She was asking me about my podcasting experiences, and that got me going, and the rapport was really flowing between us. This post-interview experience with Tanith brought home to me what a skillful journalist she really is, asking great questions, being ever-curious, and digging down to get the goods. That's definitely what she's done in her book. I highly recommend it to you, especially if you recognize the blahs in your life and are looking for tips for jump-starting your former joyous self. Hi, Dr. Dave. I've been listening to Shrinkwrap Radio for a while, so I thought it was high time for me to make a donation for a couple of reasons. First of all, you've pointed me in the direction of some very interesting authors whose books I have bought and obviously paid for, so I figured it was only fair that you get a reward for your own work. And secondly, these long, in-depth interviews are sort of a niche format produced almost exclusively by independent podcasters who rely on individual donations to cover their own costs. So I'd like to appeal to all your listeners to step up to the plate and make a donation. Thank you very much for all your good work. 
Thank you, Michael Gintner, for this appreciation of my long-form interviews and for your long-term commitment to supporting my work and for encouraging others to follow your brilliant example. Once again, time to shrink-wrap it up. Thanks to Tenneth Carey, London psychology journalist, speaking about her book, Feeling Blah, Why Anadonia Has Left You Joyless, and How to Recapture Life's Highs. Thank you for this important book and for the lively conversation after the formal interview. Next week, my guest will be CEO of Transcendental Meditation International, Dr. Tony Nader, and we'll be discussing his book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.